Before we get into today's chat, we'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which we record this podcast today, the peoples of the Kulin Nation. As always, we pay our respects to their elders past and present. Instead of trying to dive super deep into all the different ways that people get behind, I usually just try and encourage people to say, whatever you want for the people that you care about the most in the world, just want that for people you don't know. Mm -hmm. And don't try and hoard the things that you think are useful just for you and yours, like it's a zero-sum game. Welcome to Talking in Common, a podcast of all things lifestyle, family, relationships, well-being, kids and culture. This is not a how-to, but an insight into the lives of ourselves and others and how we all manage to get by. Hosted by myself, Kate Gadinsky, and my co-host, Sophie Panton. Take a listen and let's find out what we all have in common. A big thank you to today's episode sponsor, our friends at Swiss Wellness, making people around the world healthier and happier. Welcome back to Talking in Common. Today, Soph and I are joined by the wonderful and inspiring Josh Reed Jones. Josh is a social impact professional, social entrepreneur, and the founder of the Just Be Nice Project, which aims to change the way people help people until they are housed, employed, and have positive mental health outcomes. Also involved in several non-profit organisations, Josh works daily to engage businesses, schools, organisations, and communities in the process of creating extraordinary change in the world through making ordinary positive change. We're intrigued by his critical thinking, eye-opening perspectives and professional insight. So we are very excited to get into this one. Josh, welcome. How are you going? I'm good. Thank you for having me. What a beautiful spot we're in today for this little yarn. It's great. Thank you for taking time out of your life to be with us. (laughs) It's my pleasure. Just keep up the kombucha and the lovely... uh, backlit sort of sunshine and we're all good to go. (laughs) Do our best. So Josh, as Soph said, we're excited to talk to you about everything you do and believe in and all the things that you're so passionate about. But first, can you tell us a little bit about who Josh is as a person, your background and what led you to the path that you're on now? How long have you got? We'll set set some hands on fire over here for the interpreter. My whole life, I've just been trying to answer this question of why don't people get the help that they need when they need it, for as long as they need it, regardless of how they come to need help. And I think I've always been exposed to challenges that were put on people that weren't necessarily their fault. I think there's a lot of moral judgment around giving help to people and whether or not people deserve or don't deserve help. And that informs a lot of the decisions that we make in that space. But there was no epiphanous moment that came to me one day. It's something I've been thinking about since I was a kid, probably by virtue of the way I grew up and the positive and negative elements of my childhood and my adolescence. And then in aid of that, I suppose one of the principles that came to me quite early was that the better you are at stuff, the more impact you're able to have. So I've always tried to be really great at whatever I'm trying to do. And that's taken me down some interesting, I suppose, career or skill development paths uh, on the way to where I am today. I'm a carpenter by trade, but when I was doing my apprenticeship, I did an undergraduate degree in arts and and did a double major in philosophy and media and communications, worked in gyms and owned a gym and played sport, played music and 
did a master's of business and did all this kind of weird stuff all along the way. It's always just been in aid of trying to work out the best way to bring people along this journey of improving help for people. So all of those skills combined, all of those experiences have led me to where I am today, which is obviously having run the Just Be Nice project for uh, coming up to 10 years or something like oh, that wow. at the moment. Yeah, it's been going a while. Have you found that like throughout your childhood or throughout your earlier years that you noticed yourself seeing things differently to other people? It's funny that you asked that. I don't think I noticed it. And because when it's about what you're about, I didn't go searching for a purpose. I think a lot of people, they go through life and then at some point they go, oh, now I want to give back or maybe I want to do something or mm. or someone near them ne- needs help that they don't get and they go, oh, hang on. And usually it's an aid of the person that they want to help. I've always thought that if you have tough times, it should open your eyes to the fact that everyone has tough times mm. and not be so focused on your own challenges that you ignore everyone else's challenges. Mm-mm. So I think early days I took away from that, that if I'm having tough times or people I'm seeing are having tough times, then there must be other people having similarly tough times. And it can't be a unique experience because we're not all that unique. But there was a time some years ago when I was having a little bit of a, a moment where I was unsure because you're trying to do this stuff all the time and people are skeptical, rightly so. And you can do it and it can be very difficult and so you wonder like, should I just throw in the towel and just work as a management consultant and have my holidays and (laughs) be able to afford a mortgage and all that kind of stuff. And I found this letter, I was moving and I found this letter from my old man and it was from when I was about 11 or something or 12, maybe 11. The letter was basically wishing me peace was in this letter. He said, look, I hope you get some peace. It was for maybe uh, New Year's or something. In the New Year, I wish you peace. And lots of people say this kind of thing to me. I've said it my whole life. Like, we just wish you could have a moment where you could relax and feel okay about everything. But as I read through the letter, it's going, you know, you've always spent all your time trying to look after people. You're always trying to look out for everyone. You always walk around with the weight of the world on your shoulders. It's going to be okay. I just hope sometime you get a minute Mm. to just realize that, like, you're doing a good job and these things matter. And this was was 20-odd years ago. And so – it came obviously at that time and I was like, whatever. I didn't remember it, but I'd found this letter because I've got those, I don't know if you guys got shoe boxes oh, full yeah, of all the cards and the stuff. Box, yeah, yeah, the box, box and all the things. Really yeah. important sentimental things. But it, it came at a really nice time because I was like, I have literally been on this thing forever. This is not a gimmick. It's not a one-off. It's, I never, it's not an epiphanous moment. Let's go. Now I care. This mm. is what I'm about. It's what I've always been about. And that was a nice little reminder from a time I couldn't remember from a perspective you can't have as a 10 or 11-year-old that, righto, this is something that is obviously sort of intrinsic to the way that you see the world. So I think I've always looked at the world that way and um, it's informed all of my decisions, like always. It's interesting because I think someone doing the type of work that you do, it can only come from within, you know. It can only be truly genuine because you can't speak about something that's so important for others but not truly feel it. So it makes a lot of sense that that is just who you are in your being and always have been, you know, someone that wants to look out for the next person. Like you can see it and you can feel it about you. I think you can pretend, but I don't think you can pretend for 30 years. I think that's the challenge. Yeah, You can do things that give the veneer of caring and you can do bits of things that maybe 
take care of some of your guilt about stuff. I think people definitely do that. Yeah. And I think people get caught up in the romance of it, like we do with lots of things, maybe looking like a bodybuilder, maybe sounds great, looks great, but the reality is it's very difficult, takes ages, mm. it's a lot of sacrifice, feels a bit rubbish. And people go, actually, I'm happy with like not doing yeah. that. Yeah. It's the same with this kind of stuff, I think. And so a lot of the things that look great and a lot of things people say about, oh, it must be so rewarding and all those things, that's 0.05% of, of what it is mm-hmm. because it's mostly just quite difficult. Yeah, it's mostly there's a lot to be done. And so the scale of the problem, if you want to engage with it fully and not just do the stuff that makes you feel good, that actually gets the best outcomes for the people you're trying to help, that's hard. And there's nothing really f- that fun or easy about it on the whole there's great moments, of course, yeah. but I think if you make that decision thinking it's going to be a bit more fun and a bit more rewarding and all that kind of stuff, then people tap out pretty soon. Yeah. yeah. So what about you? Do you have a good support network of people, you know, friends and family around you supporting you and helping you when you need that? Yeah, I'm blessed. And I think that that has also informed a lot of the work that I try to do too. Yeah. I think in a very individualistic culture, which we have, a lot of the stuff you hear in this space, a lot of advice people give is about what people need to do, the people who need help, what yeah. they need to do. We put a lot of stuff on what vulnerable people need to do. And when the stories that we tell ourselves are about what we've done ourselves, what that does a lot of the time and the way that's affected impact literacy and social impact more broadly is that people give advice about what people in need need to do. So if I have this interpretation of my life where I worked hard, I took opportunities, I studied, I tried, I did long hours, and then I've been able to keep things going off the sweat of my own brow, and then someone comes to me and says, oh, I'm having a tough time. I go, well, what you need to do is work hard, Mm. look for opportunities, reach out, try harder, do these sorts of things. And that misses the mark for so many people. So one thing I always encourage people to do is to look around their life and look at all the things they can't take credit for. And I have been the beneficiary of so much luck and so many wonderful people and so many things that I had no control over that worked out well that now the advice and the help and the things that I try and do for people are about creating environments that enable people to endure whatever challenge comes their way because – Resilient communities help create resilient people and there's been really tough times. But by virtue of me sitting here now with all these wonderful people, I've had enough help to get where I need to be. I'm still going, I'm still chugging along and sometimes it's felt like it's come pretty close to not getting there but we have got there and I absolutely cannot take full credit for that. And it's different people and different things at different times but 100% on Boyd by all the support and and all the wonderful people that I've had in my life since day one. We definitely want to talk about the power of people helping people, but let's just start with understanding, you know, people and their differences first. When we first met with you a few weeks ago, you sort of explained a concept or an idea to Soph and I about positivity and negativity not necessarily being on opposite sides of the same coin. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, so... One of the challenges for delivering help when you've got such a broad range of problems or challenges that that happen and try not to make it too focused on the problems of, say, like well-to-do white people who dominate the space because they've got more visibility just in general. So a lot of communities that are in need 
by number, they make up massive amounts of the planet, billions of people that need help. But in terms of visibility, they make up a very small percentage. And to come up with frameworks that can pick up everyone and aren't just focused on looking after the people that are in front of you or the people that are the easiest to help, perhaps, we have to develop these frameworks that are kind of a bit more universal and sort of tackle the human condition where it is. And so to do that, one of the frameworks that we have is around happiness. And it gives us some levers that we can use to try and see where there might be a deficiency or where we can help people. And we have four sort of pillars in that model for happiness. The first one is positivity. We describe it as people being positive, their capacity to feel positive, to to have up emotions. And some people are really good at it. Some people quite naturally and quite easily can feel really up and really positive. We all know people like that. And then some people really struggle. Everything could be going really well. And they really struggle to sort of reach a, a 10 out of 10 on like this positive feeling of emotion. And if you can imagine a bell curve in your mind as a distribution, there's a small number of people who feel positive really, really easily, small number of people who really struggle no matter what's going on. And most people are kind of in the middle of the bell curve. I sit on like the bottom side of that bell curve a little bit where I know that's quite difficult. I don't usually get up and about and whoop all the time. I'm not that guy, but I'm aware of the things that keep me up as high as I can get. If I'm training well, if I take the time to see my friends, if I feel like Sometimes you get a bit insular and you're like, oh, I don't want to go out. And you go out and you're like, I'm glad I did. Like, it's good to see people, you know, doing things at work, being mildly productive. That all helps. I think I'm the same. I think you're probably a bit the same too. You've got to work a bit at it, you know, and you're never bouncing off the walls, but it's okay. And you just know that if you keep those things up, you're maintaining it. And so in the discussion about mental health in particular, people use negativity as being on the same scale. So if, you, if you're in the middle or if you're a bit towards positive, it means you've got more positivity going on than negativity. But the way that we treat it is as a separate element. It's the second element in this sort of levers for happiness. And the negativity scale is about your capacity to bounce back from a negative state. So how quickly, how easily, what do you need to do to bounce back from this negative state? And again, you've got some people who bounce back really easily, really quickly, no dramas. And you've got some people who just get stuck and it doesn't even have to be a big ticket item that knocks them into the doldrums, but they just end up hanging out there. And most people, again, are kind of in the middle. And so on that one, I'm right up the end. It's really hard to keep me down. Even though I don't get up really positive, I don't sit in misery and negativity very long. I'm very fortunate in that regard. And if you kind of think of the stoic older person from the war in England or whatever who loves to complain but they keep calm, carry on. They complain a bit. They're not really up and about but also there's nothing's going to keep them down. They just keep going. They just keep going. Whereas we have these other people and these stories abound in the mental health space. The life of the party, the guy who was always up and about, he was so much fun, he did all these things and then tragically make some decisions because at the moment that they were in a negative state, they could not get out of it. The intensity was too much. And it's because they're different things. Your capacity to be really up and about and be the life of the party doesn't necessarily mean that you are also able to get out of a negative state really easily. So we check those things against what people are doing and how people are to make sure that like, okay, you're really happy, that's great, but how do you go when something's difficult? 
check in with them when something's hard and not just assume that because you can feel really great, you're going to be able to bounce out of a negative state really quick. Interesting. So we often make observations on people exactly like what you just said, unfortunately. He was always the life of the yeah. party or, oh, actually, she was always a bit up and down and we're kind of purely making an observation when we probably don't really know them very well or what they're actually like as a person. Yeah, and it's taking the time to check in if things are difficult. Again, it's looking around people. It's understanding yeah. what's going on with people. will make you better at the times where you check in. Yeah. If you're pregnant, you know, you've got a whole bunch of extra conditions going on, extra stresses, extra things to worry about, extra time that everything takes. So if someone goes, do you need me to just pick this up for you on the way home? And you go, amazing. Was I ever going to ask for it? No, I was never going to probably ask for that. But that's just made it easier and makes it easier for me to feel a bit more positive, makes it easier for me to stop feeling despondent about like I'm falling behind on my tasks and it's all so hard and all this kind of stuff. That's true. So that's that paying attention to not what you need to do, but what's happening around you and how to recreate those environments that best support people into a positive state, but also out of a negative spot if they're in one. All right. So if we go into a little bit more about people helping people, can you just explain like exactly what you mean by this and like what is the power of it? It's a really great question and it's something that, first of all, I think there are levels to help. Mm. If you can start off by acknowledging that some help is better than other help, that there is really, really great, excellent, top-tier, AAA help, and then there is help that's a bit not great, mm. that means that we have to be able to rank help. We have to be able to say that this is better than this and this is worse than this. It's a difficult conversation in a space where people mostly get into it with good intentions, but... We don't have a lot of practical criticism in the space about what's not working that well because you can just start something and get applause immediately for trying to do something. So one of the first things that I try and help people understand is that really good help is delivered best by people who know what they're doing. And there's a few layers to knowing what you're doing. One is knowing the people and communities that you're trying to help really well and one is knowing the best kinds of help to give them. You've got to juggle this balance between agency for the people that you're trying to help and support and guidance for them. Same with kids. If you let the kids decide everything they're going to do, they're eating ice cream nine times a day, you know that's not a great result. If you tell the kids what to do every day, all day, dictate their whole life, they're probably going to be pretty miserable as well going, oh, I have to do this and I have to do that because my parents make me do all these things and I don't get to make any choices. I always say it's not an art or a science. It's what being human is, is to find that balance all the time. Sometimes you know better. Don't stick the knife in the toaster. You can want to as much as you want to, but I know that that's a terrible thing to do. You want to stick some stuff in some stuff? Let's find a way for me to direct you to something that's maybe a bit more tactile for your play. So with help, you're always juggling those things. Agency for the person you're trying to help or the communities you're trying to help, access to what they need to pursue the opportunities they want to pursue and how much guidance and how much sort of in its worst iteration, it's paternal telling everyone what to do and in its best iteration, you're just keeping the things up in front of them that help them be the best they can be. So the overarching thing that gets missed in a lot of conversations is trust. It doesn't matter if you do know everything, if you're really the person who knows all the answers, if someone doesn't trust you or if they don't trust the place that you're, you're working in, it doesn't matter. They won't engage with the help. And as you know, that makes it very difficult. You can have all the answers. Someone goes, I don't know, or I'm not interested, or I'm not engaged. Pointless to give them all the best answers. And you need to take the time to build that trust. And that usually comes 
from a depth of a relationship and time in with someone, or it can come from deep expertise. So I guess the example I always give is if I was playing footy when I was a kid and mum goes, oh, you, you're so good at footy. And I go, whatever, mum. Like, you don't really know what you're talking about. You tell me all these things all the time. Yeah, you're there. You're biased. You're yeah, biased. You just say it. And I don't even think you really know. <laughs> but then like a coach might tell me in under 16s and he's been around for six years, keeping an eye on me, he goes, hey, man, you're really coming together. Like, I think you're going really well. I go, great. There's someone who's got enough time in, who knows what they're talking about, who I trust, who's paid attention, and that means something. That trust piece matters. The alternative is Luke Hodge comes in and he sees me on the first day and goes, mate, you've got something. And I go, he really knows what he's talking about in this domain. I'll listen to him. That might actually be something that makes a difference. We love to tell stories about strangers telling people they're killing it and going, oh, my God, you're so amazing. And while it's lovely, I don't think it should affect who you are and I don't think we should emphasise that as being the best way to help people because it pulls you away from that depth. It pulls you away from taking the time to hang around and keep an eye on this kid for six years or be a great friend for 10 years or be engaged in the lives of your kids for ages and mostly not have this amazing moment that you're looking for, but perennially be earning the opportunity to have that moment. So it starts with trust. When we have trust and we build understanding, we're able to deliver better help. And the best kind of help is the help that ensures people get better. So from like a friend to friend point of view, or if someone's listening to this thinking, there is someone that I'd like to reach out to that I feel like maybe needs a bit of extra support. I don't exactly know how they're feeling, but they're a bit off. They're not 100% sure whether the trust is there. Like they have a good friendship, but maybe it's not that deep, but they really want to help them. What does that look like? If you go to your friend with a good intention, wanting to help them, but it's not received that well, what's that sort of realistic situation look like, do you think? I would say take responsibility for why they're not comfortable opening up potentially. Yeah, yeah, okay. Be realistic about the circumstance. Like what are you doing around them that maybe is putting them off? Maybe you're not the person. If I bumped into someone in a lift who was crying and I said, you okay? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'll be okay. It's like, you sure? Like, can I get you something? And I go, mm. yeah, yeah, I'm all right. Okay. Mm. I don't know this person. I mean, I'd say it looks like they're not okay, but I don't know them well enough to press them. So in that instance, Okay. Uh, have you got someone to talk to is a great question. Have you got someone? And I say, yep. And I go, all right, you're good. If it was my mum who was giving me a bit of attitude or something, I was like, are you okay? Like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. Like, tell me. It never happens. My mum tells me everything all the time. So she'd be overtelling me. But Overshares. Overshares <laughs> constantly. But I would press her because it's my mum and I speak to her every day and I know to press her. We're very close. Understanding that not everyone is going to open up to you in the same way is is firstly really important. And then understanding how you are around people and how that might close people up is also really important when you're trying to work out why they don't open up. I did a bunch of work with young LGBTIQA plus kids. They weren't young, young, like teenagers. The parents are in the room and you go, righto, who cares about their kids? And they're all like, yep. And you want them to tell you if something's wrong and everyone says, yep. And you go, great, it's wonderful. And so you would say, if you want to talk to me about something, come and talk to me about something. Then you talk to the kids and they say, yeah, yeah, look, I'm, I'm sure they love me. But at the dinner table my whole life, my dad said, oh, gays don't play footy. Well, I play footy and I'm gay and I don't want to have to bring that up and 
go through the whole rigmarole. Mm. I don't think they don't love me. I do think he doesn't understand and I can't be bothered trying to go through this whole thing and so I just rather not talk about it. And they yeah. shut off. They shut off. And it's because it's not because you didn't say don't ever talk to me about it. It's because of how you are around the person that locks that conversation off from ever being able to happen. It's so true. Like I think a lot of people have that person in their life that are telling them, I'm here for you if you ever want to talk to me, if there's anything that you need. But they're also that person that is potentially the last person you'd go to. Yeah. And it's um, it does exactly what you're saying, like the complete opposite. You want to shut off. But then I think sometimes it can also make you more aware of not wanting to speak about it to anyone because if you're like if I'm getting that feeling from someone that's close to me that I trust but they're the last person that I want to speak to why would my friend or so and so be the right person but I think you know what I'm getting from it in simple terms is it's not what you say it's what you do yeah definitely being consistent definitely what you do and definitely understanding that people have different needs yeah so people often go for help to people that they think can help Yes. I don't know this, so I don't mean this to be sexist, but if we're in the car and we're driving and then it starts smoking, the engine starts smoking and we're married and you're like, I love you so much and I'll do anything for you and the car starts smoking and you've never seen under the bonnet of a car, with all due respect and love, I'm not asking you to help me me. with this problem. (laughs) You know, you're not the guy. I'm going to call my mate because I also don't know. I'm going to call my mate and go, dude, something's smoking. He goes, open it up. Is it to the left? And he's going to sort me out. I'm not married to this other person. They don't yeah. maybe love me as deeply and as they're not as committed as you are, yeah. but they've got the tools to help me with this particular problem. Mm. Yeah. And so sometimes it's not even about care. It's yeah. just going, look, I have this problem. I've got a sexual health problem. You're really not comfortable with that conversation. You know something's wrong. I don't want to talk about it with you because I know you're going to be uncomfortable and I'm making a decision based on the way you are that instead I'm going to talk to Susan who's like up for whatever, she'll talk about anything. And it's not a judgment on who likes me more or who I like more, but just who's the appropriate person to go to for this particular problem. And so my aspiration is that everyone has someone for all the things, but it doesn't have to be the same someone for all the things. Okay, time for a quick breather. (sighs) We just want to acknowledge the support of our friends at Swiss Wellness for helping us bring this episode to you. Swiss Wellness, making people around the world healthier and happier. Now let's get back to the episode. We want to learn from you and talk to you about the bigger picture, Mm. but sort of talk about some other things first. So in this conversation, you know, me helping a friend or someone helping someone else, what's the power of that on a micro level? Prevention is definitely better than cure when it comes to challenges. If you break your arm and you go to the hospital, you'll be sorted out, fixed in six weeks to fix a bone. Mm -hmm. If you leave it for 12 months and it becomes a whole rigmarole, heals wrong, you've got to have it broken, you've got a whole new rehab situation, it's a nightmare. A lot of problems are just like that. That the quicker you can have someone sort of bump you out of trouble and help you up and just realign your vision and make sure you know you're okay and help you be okay, we prevent a lot of the very worst things happening. And so that's really important. And a lot of that's going to come from your direct network of support that's with you all the time. Yeah. Sometimes people are going to be caught out of their depth and you would want them to be able to call someone to help with whatever that challenge is or to fill that need. There are some problems that people are really comfortable dealing with and there are some that culturally we're not really wrapped about. Giving people in need just cash, culturally, people are really uncomfortable with that. They're really uncomfortable with it. Even if it would solve 95% of their challenges, there's something about giving poor people cash that a lot of people are like, oh, what do they just get cash? Mm -hmm. 
But if we don't, it's only going to get worse. They're going to have all these dramas and they're like, well, how about we just talk about your problems? Which for some people who need to talk about the problems is great. If you're having problems with your bills, it's a bit inadequate. It's not enough. We're not finishing It's the not job. going to fix your problems no. talking about it. That's right. And so it's in a micro sense, having people around you and having a, a robust network helps you endure a lot more challenges. You've got no one around you, smaller things knock you down further and for longer. So I think that's really important. But also having a depth of understanding between friends and family helps them understand the context that's brought you to where you are as well. And so you can meet people and and you might be working with someone, for instance, and they're having a tough time and you're not sure why. And then their very close friend understands like some kind of complex trauma that they've been through many, many, many years ago that they're like, I think this is bringing up a bit of that. Mm. And so they are able to help at a level that your kindly considerate attempts are going to miss because like, oh, do you just need a breather or do you need Mm. this thing? Mm. And so having all of those different sort of flavours of relationship, if you like, they help. The more you've got, the better you are. And we're sort of wired that way as people. We're wired to have all those different kinds of relationships. And I think that prevents people from getting in a really bad spot. And then when they're in a bad spot, then we try and create better infrastructure around them to make sure that they get the help that they need then. I think as a society we do lack a social responsibility. Is there a time where you think we went wrong in terms of that or a time where people used to be more supportive of each other, be more engaged in community and all that sort of thing? It's funny because it depends on on where you look. Yeah, I'd say or where that, you are as yeah, well maybe. I'd say a few hundred years ago before uh, Captain Cook decided to set up camp in in Botany Bay, things mm. were going pretty well here for about 60,000, 80,000 years, mm-hmm. uh, that they were managing things quite well and in a considerate and collegiate manner amongst themselves with, with deep connection to country and family. And I really, I think that's probably a great example. Yeah. Uh, and that was only a couple of hundred years ago that that got turned on its head, courtesy of the colonising. There were times where economically things were more equal and I think that that brought people closer together. So before the 80s when a lot of this sort of direction happened during the Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan era of what they call neoliberal capitalism where they started going to free markets and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Before that, you could buy a house with you know half a year's salary and you could have a car that almost everyone had. There was no half a million dollar car. In the 70s, there wasn't a single billionaire on the planet. They didn't exist at that time. And so because everyone's a bit more equal, they feel a bit more together economically, things feel more accessible. The people with a lot aren't as worried that the people with less are going to come and get theirs. The people with less aren't mad that they've got heaps and they don't. Yeah. But at the same time, civil rights were a nightmare in those countries. Racism was rampant. Women didn't have all the same opportunities that they have now. Sexual health wasn't being discussed and, and body autonomy wasn't the same. So there were definitely challenges. And to tackle them all together is a big project, but it's kind of necessary that you need to be able to pull each little bit out and say, well, when people can't afford to live somewhere, that's going to put stress on them. But at the same time, if you're being segregated, that's also stressful. And if education is really unequal, that's stressful. And all of these things do matter. Whether they're equal or not equal in terms of weight really depends on your own personal context or the context of the community in which you're working in. So I think It's about starting with an aspiration that we all feel that people are all deserving of the same stuff that we think the people we love the most are. 
instead of trying to dive super deep into all the different ways that people get behind, I usually just try and encourage people to say, whatever you want for the people that you care about the most in the world, just want that for people you don't know. Mm -hmm. And don't try and hoard the things that you think are useful just for you and yours like it's a zero-sum game. Change your mindset and yeah. think about everyone as more of a collective. than Yeah, and just like if you think it's important for your kid to have all of these wonderful opportunities, just want them for everyone else's honest. kid. Yeah. And don't get, in, simple, don't, nice get, yeah, to, don't get in yeah. the way of, of that being an issue. I had a chat years ago with a guy who was an executive at a big sort of professional services situation, very well-off guy, privately educated from a long line of well-off educated professionals. And... We are talking about working with kids at the time. I was trying to get some support for a program putting um, at-risk kids into employment outcomes and training. And he was like, oh, does anyone ever not want to work? I said, well, to be honest, mate, I often don't want to work, but I just understand the importance of it and so I do it because I prefer it to having no, no food on the table and all the stress that comes with that. But sometimes it takes a while to get them to understand what that looks like because some of these kids have never – seen it demonstrated to them what work looks like and I just don't think that's their fault that that's the case that they've grown up in that environment and then he goes don't you think if you do too much for them that they won't want to help themselves and I was like okay fair call we're doing fairly elementary stuff with these guys it's about trying to a long game engage them let them try a few different jobs out work out what works I'm always pitching it like let them fail and give them another chance instead of committing them to one job or one thing and then when they go I don't know about it saying see they're lazy and they don't want to work it's about giving them the time and space to work that out and so he's gone you know don't you think that'll make them lazy and I said to him where do your boys go to school and I knew because we'd talked about it before and he's like what does that matter I said well where do they go to school and it's a grammar school in Melbourne and each kid's about $30,000 a year in school fees and I said well they've got Saturday sport music tutors a couple of excursions a year some international stuff They've got teachers that are paid above award to bring them the best possible education. They've got pastoral care, psychologists, massive campus, sports campus, you know, rowing sheds. Uh, they've got all of this support. Aren't you worried that if you give them too much stuff, they're just going to be lazy and not want to do anything? And he was like, right like, <laughs> there you go. And I was like, no, you don't because you know that if you put enough stuff in front of them, they find the thing that maybe aligns with them and their skills and their aptitudes – and then you keep up to them those opportunities so they can do the best they possibly can in a network where everyone's trying to do the same thing and you believe that's going to get the best outcomes for them. Why would you deny these kids one fiftieth of that? Like at the time I was asking for less than a year's worth of school fees for one of those kids. That's what the whole program was even going to be run on, you know, and, and that was for about 15 kids and it was just about keeping some things moving along. And so when I say about aligning aspirations and not just trying to hoard stuff in a zero-sum game, that's the kind of stuff that we need people to like go, oh, yeah, okay. You know, just because you're in a third-world country, we shouldn't just be like, well, you'll be happy with a mosquito net and dirt floors and all this kind of stuff. You know, if we want it, let's find a way to get it to everybody else. And I think if you can do that and approach circumstances and situations like that, you realise, all right, we've got a bit of a mission ahead of us, but it's a worthwhile exercise. So, Josh, we want to talk a little bit about human connection and the impact this has on our mental health. In a lot of ways, it would seem that we're kind of more connected than ever. But then, you know, in another way, like in a world where we're so kind of hyper connected, 
you know, we kind of feel a lot more disconnected than we ever have. Why do you think this is? I wrote an article about this ages ago where I said, I think we're more available and we're less connected. We're on call all the time, but the depth of connection is probably not the same. And the depth of understanding of what's going on with people takes a knock as a result of that. What we compare ourselves to is also so different because I see what the Kardashians have got in their pantry every day and I go, well, my pantry doesn't look like yeah. I've got an old onion in there. I've got a pile of Serena tuna in There's there. There's like you know, colour Yeah, look at this colour well, coordinator. Yeah. I'm like, geez, I must not be doing very well. I must not have my life together or whatever. And all of that definitely impacts us. And I think some of that is the two other elements of the happiness levers that we work on are focus and your ability to focus yeah. and uh, your capacity to contribute to people because that makes a huge difference. And we're bombarded with transactional opportunities for all kinds of stuff, mm. transactional help, transactional sex, transactional chats, Everything. whatever. Everything you can mm. just you can just order it on demand. Yeah. And that's not really connection in the way that your really close friends and stuff deliver connection. But it is easier and it is quicker and it is abundant. And we're also wired to look for those things too, like eating you know, sugary, fatty, salty foods. It tastes delicious. Your brain's like, right, a bit more of that. Let's go, let's go. So stepping away from all of those things and paying attention and valuing consistency over intensity in our relationships, I think would go a long way to improving that connection. And having the goal of understanding people and their context better, like I, I hate seeing posts all the time where people are like, um, I'm just getting rid of anything that doesn't serve me. What? Like sometimes things don't serve you. Anyone with young kids, like this little rat bag is just doesn't sleep, it's making a mess, it's pooping everywhere, you know, like is this serving me? No, but you know it's <laughs> worth it. Like of course, yeah. I'm serving the kid for a bit and it comes in, in cycles and it's the same with relationships. Like sometimes people need you to be there and we've got when you've got a really transactional culture, you're not used to settling in for something that takes two years to get over. Mm. You don't have this idea in your head that if someone's having a difficult time that they can cycle through getting a bit better and getting worse. Over five years, it might take that long yeah. to leave an abusive relationship, to get over an addiction, to get on top of whatever mental health challenges that they've got. And people are like, oh, this person, oh, I'm over it. Like all they need is take, take, take. And so if you can meet your energy and your emotional energy based on what you can give, certainly that's important. But this idea that everyone has to serve you and everything has to help you achieve something and all that and connection for connection's sake is waste of time. I think that does everyone a disservice if we let people think like that. So mm. hang on to your old mates and put in the time and try and have deep relationships where you talk about things and you're open and honest and it doesn't have to be with everybody, but it should be with some people. You should have yeah. that. And if you do have that and you do have a partner, it also takes a bit of pressure off the one partner to have to be all the things and wear all the hats and shoulder every emotional burden that you bring home as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think about that a lot too. Like in my relationship, there's so high expectations because you want it to be a good, loving, inspiring, connected yeah. relationship all of all the, the time. time. But you might need something that actually a friend gives you or a parent yeah. or a child and you can't expect that from one person all the time. It's just not realistic. But I think talking about the hyper connection compared to, you know, real genuine physical connection technologies obviously a another turning point yeah. um, in society and in history that's played a role in where we potentially went wrong <laughs> as well, well. We were growing up. I'm old enough to remember before the internet and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And so 
there was always this thing. It was like, oh, 90% of communication is nonverbal and like you're picking it up from the people in front of you and all these sorts of things. And yeah. for all the changes to text messaging and all that sort of stuff, people aren't more eloquent. I'm not waking up in the morning, oh, delightful morning, love of my life, ray of sunshine who brightens my – people are what up? Yeah. yeah, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. We're not getting be- we're not getting more eloquent. Yeah. We're not having no, deeper conversations. It's the opposite. Right? It's the opposite. Yeah. We, like we don't why what, 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 W Y D like yeah. whatever. Like yeah. you used to have to put a bit of effort in. I used to have to get on my skateboard and skate yeah. two suburbs over to see my girlfriend. I'm like, what are you doing? You yeah. up? You know, like yeah. you could just send a text or yeah, give we're a not quick better call. at it as yeah. a result. So another principle that we have at JBN is about as often as possible putting people with people in real life. Yeah, yeah. And I know people are a bit uncomfortable about that sometimes, but I really think it's really important to have the option there and to try and keep it up as often as possible. And digital stuff is useful, but it's a tool and I don't think it should supplant all of those things that have worked for you know, have me 300,000 years of being humans. Yeah, because you feel like you know exactly what's going on with friends you might not see all the time through social media yeah. and stuff. Mm. But really, actually, have no idea how they're going, what they've actually yeah. been up to, because people tend to just post all that shiny sort of. Well, it rewards intensity. Yeah, it's either highlight or it's either low light. Or low moments. light moments. Yeah, these and are then the it's like you're kind of reaching out for help when you post a low light. Yeah, it's using. <laughs> Very confusing. But when you grow yeah. up around people, it also gives you better tools to understand what's going on with you as well. So. Like imagine that you grew up with no one, like literally no one, just on your own. Somehow you know how to feed yourself, but you're a solo person and then you're on an island or whatever and then some random bloke walks up. Oh, first time you've seen a bloke, oh, what's going on? You know, we're all grown ups or whatever. We don't really know what's going on. We work it out. We do the things that kind of just feel good. So, righto, what happens happens and then he just kind of whatever swims off or something and then you're back on the island on your own and you have a baby like nine months later. You would freak out. You've got no idea what's happening. What is this thing? Where's it come from? Oh, my goodness. I have no idea how this happened. It just is coming out of me. You have no context for what's happened. If you've been around people having kids, you mm-hmm. understand, okay, maybe my belly, oh, okay, a little Process. baby is this. I've seen a little baby. I get it. And so being around people actually helps you understand your own circumstances much better. Yes. Yeah. Gives you those tools to realise I'm not the first person in the history of the world to do this thing, have yeah. this emotion, feel this way. And that's really important. It's a great example. You're speaking to the right audience. Yeah, that's right. I knew you have got the, the, the baby mummers everywhere. The best way for your kids, <laughs> kids to learn yeah. is like what you model in front of yeah. them. Like mm. I and what they see from best other way. Yeah. kids and stuff like that. Yeah, being around people. So we want to talk to you a little bit about moving from awareness to solutions mm-hmm. with mental health because this is something that you speak of. And I think like I feel like we're potentially on the brink of a real shift in this because of the increasing awareness. But what are the solutions in your opinion and do you feel like we are in a position of progressing? It's uh, it's interesting because if you have a, a view that you need to tell people what they need to do to sort out their mental health, you'll approach it very differently to someone who wants to wholly say that there are systemic failures that mean it's impossible to deal with your own mental health and I think that's part of the really difficult juggle. Uh, that's the juggle that I try and manage all the time and it's difficult to communicate as like this is the answer. Some communities have got really great access to the things they need to be okay and some don't. If we treat mental health as just only purely related to how you talk to people and the people in your life, then I think we've got a long way to go. 
if you're prepared to include in your advocacy for good mental health things like access to housing that's affordable, good jobs that aren't exploitative and that pay enough and that have good conditions, that you've got opportunity for your kids and for yourself more generally as well as opportunities for leisure and all of these sorts of things, then we can move to making sure that people have good mental health outcomes. If, it's, if you're purely in the mindset that it's just all in your brain and you just need to work it out on your own, then you've got a little bit of adjusting your aspiration before we're going to get anywhere on, on helping people. At the moment, it's dominated with conversations and it's dominated by telling people what they need to do. If we expand the understanding of good mental health outcomes to include those environmental things, I think we can make some progress, but also I think we're quite far away from some of those being included, which is why at JBM we went housing, employment and mental health all together at the same time. Because if you're housed and employed and your mental health is poor, your chance of losing your job at some point or your house. If you're housed and you've got good mental health and no job, your house is at risk. You know, like if you don't take care of all of those things at once, you're leaving people in harm's way. And so it's possible we have enough resources in the planet to make sure everyone's looked after, but every day we make decisions to not do that. And so it's about how do we make decisions where people don't feel like they're losing everything they care about by looking after other people as well and including them in that aspiration for everyone being all right. So I hope so. Obviously, I'm, I'm positive. I have a positive aspiration in this space, but I think we've still got some way to go for certain communities, definitely. Yep. Another idea that we really like that we've heard you speak about is exercising our brains like we do our body and looking at them equally. How do we do this, would you say? I think it's being conscious of what you're doing and taking the time. This is a bit of an, uh, this is probably a bit of an excellence throwback for me because I always think, oh, how do you do this thing better? How do you be a better friend? How do you get through a difficult time? How do you take responsibility as often as possible for yourself and for the people around you? People rail against that sometimes. They're like, don't take responsibility, just float through life. It's all going to be okay. That's fine. That's just not how I approach it. And being honest with yourself and with the people around you, I think, helps you to build that resilience and to build an understanding. If you realize that you're having a trouble that everyone else has, I think it lessens the severity of the trouble. That's true. Yeah, so that's definitely true. you've got to be involved with people to do that. And I know you've got a lot of mothers in your audience, for instance, and I've seen in the last 10 years people being like, guys, you know, it's like so tiring being a mother. And I just think, who doesn't know that? <laughs> like, where have you been? Exhausted. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. like, not not that yeah. not that you can't say I'm tired, but that someone who is a mother going, guys, did you know? Mm. Yeah. And I just think, where have you been? Like, how unlucky for you that you didn't grow up somewhere where everyone was honest about what was going on, where you mm. saw enough kids, where you understood two-year-olds sometimes are incorrigible for ages, yeah. that sometimes they don't sleep, that all this kind of stuff. Like, I feel bad that you didn't see that. I'm, I'm Polynesian. And uh, from my, on my dad's side of family, we grew up around big families with lots of kids and everyone just picks them up and mm. everyone does the things. and the everyone's A village. Yeah and, yeah. and so for me, I'm like, yeah, kids do that. Yeah, you just pick them up. You yeah. just give them a cuddle. Just do this thing. Sometimes they're snotty. Yeah, it's gross. Yeah, and it's tough and it's tiring and mum's going to be knackered. And the fact that there are people who can get all the way through life and not know that is for me like an indication that we're dropping the ball on like how well we are at expressing what's going on and bringing people together and we're living insular lives and that makes your problems seem bigger that makes them seem more significant because you think you're the first one 
who's got a baby with colic or whatever, and that's unfor- that's horrible for you. I I'm, I feel terrible that you feel that way because you shouldn't. You should be like, oh, okay, it's got me now. Righto, now what do I do? I'll call up the five other mums I know that have been through this. I'll call up my grandmother who said, oh, one day, you know, if you give them mango, they're going to get sick <laughs> or whatever. You know, like I'm going to do all these things and that's that pulls you through. It makes it so much well, it's easier. It's so important to have that support network around you and that community of like-minded people, yeah. particularly, well, lots of things, but during motherhood. Josh, to finish this off, we'd love you to explain from your point of view what the bigger picture of positive change looks like. Look, ultimately... I think it's about making sure that everyone has all the things that they need to live into infinite possibilities. So sometimes say possibilities to live into, not expectations to live up to. And it's a combination of systemic enablers that make it easy for everyone. It's a function of increased equality across not just one particular community, but across the world. And that's a consequence of having the aspiration that you want everyone, whether they're in Finland or Chile or Mozambique or China or Kenya or Melbourne, to have the best that we can give them, that you've, to have the most access and the most support. And that ultimately it's in aid of not accumulating heaps of cash, which I think sometimes people worry about, like, oh, they're all coming for all our money. But in having the time and space to build deep, meaningful relationships and finding things that enable you to feel like you're contributing to the people that you love and the communities that you're in. And for those who don't understand what that looks like, it's jobs that you might think are horrible and you'd never do that people feel a deep sense of satisfaction in doing because they really are connected to what that means to the people around them. So ultimately, it's not some kumbaya thing. There's always going to be punch-ons. We're always going to have arguments. There's always going to be things we disagree on. People are going to have good times, bad times. Tragedy is going to befall all of us at some point. We're going to be happy and sad. But that you have all the support around you and that everyone has all the support around you to just ride out whatever those challenges look like, whether it's a natural disaster or a death or an illness or whatever. And if we have that, then I think people will be a lot happier, a lot more relaxed and and will live richer lives and have more opportunities. And I think the, the sort of if you have to put an economic lens on it, which some people need to, it's more creativity. It's more time to find good solutions and create wonderful things that benefit everybody and do all that sort of stuff and unlocking that potential in human beings everywhere instead of sort of leaving them in harm's way and leaving them languishing where they are. So that's my big ticket aspiration. And JBN ultimately, we just I hope that one day you'll just be able to call up with a drama and we'll be able to just help sort it out until you're back on your feet. That's the aspiration. We're a little bit off that, but ultimately that's where we're, we're headed. I love what you said, possibilities to grow into, not expectations to live up to. That's great. Good motto to live by. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Last but not least, what's something that you do, Josh, to make yourself feel well? I mean, coffee would have to be up there, <laughs> I think. Uh, coffee is up there. Exercise pretty much every day. Really, That really helps me. I try and get out in the sun. I really love being outside and... Uh, I chat to my friends daily. Uh, friends of family. There wouldn't be a day go by where I don't I don't speak to someone. I think that's really, really great. Try and stay connected to all the people that mean a lot to me. Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. We so appreciate you giving us your time and everything that you've shared with us. It's been such a great chat. So well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thanks for having me in this beautiful space. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks, Josh. <Cheers. laughs> 
That's it for today. Make sure you head to incommonprojects.com.au for the show notes. Hit subscribe on your podcast app and follow us on Instagram at Talking In Common. Or you can check out our Facebook page, which is also Talking In Common. Have a lovely day and as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.